The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 till 11. We're hoping to talk to Nick McGay from the TAC. Um, I think he might be with us on the line now. Nick, are you there? Yes. Sorry, Mitchell. That's all right. Thanks for being on the program. Um, This is an interesting idea, uh, passive alcohol sensors in vehicles. I think there's some research being undertaken here in Victoria. Is that right? Oh, correct. Um, Not just research, Mitchell, but the uh, vehicle is uh, uh, currently in Victoria. So it arrived a few weeks back. Um, fully emblazoned with the, uh, you know, the project details and basically saying the vehicle that could stop drink driving. It's a big claim, but, um, the researchers firmly believe that, uh, this is the sort of technology, uh, that could really lead us into an era where drink driving is uh, firmly in the past. So how does it work? So there's a bunch of really small sensors, passive sensors, they call them. You can barely see them. You have to look very closely and they're fitted all around the driver's cabin. And uh, what it does, it, it picks up a uh, detection of alcohol on the breath of the driver. They don't need to breathe into it. it uh, um, the uh, uh, technology is that fine-tuned that it can pick up not just um, the detection of alcohol, but whether it's over the, um, the legal level in, in whatever that jurisdiction is. Um, and the car simply will not start. Mm. What if you had very drunk passengers in the back seat? Would that sort of set off a false positive? No, I'm reliably informed that the way the uh, sensors are set up, you simply have to be in the driver's seat for it to activate. Yeah. And I think the big thing... a very common question. Yeah, yeah, well, that's what I was thinking. And I think the other big thing that I've seen at the moment with um, the breathalysers you can buy if you want them at a sort of professional level and the police ones and uh, other alcohol sensors, I think even the interlock devices, um, they do need to be calibrated on a regular basis. But these ones also need to be calibrated. Uh, I'm not aware of that finer detail. Um, at the moment, it is, uh, it's still in the trial stage, but it is based on a pretty robust research in the US. So they've been doing this a bit longer than us. Um, and they're ready to, um, commercialize it in, in a sense. Um, still a, still a long way from uh, where we're at. Um, but at the moment, our position is, well, okay, if it stacks up and we're convinced it does, um, let's, um, let's bring it to Australia and we'll be trialing it, um, in a, in a large fleet, uh, we're still looking at partners to um, uh, to join up with us. So you'd probably want a pretty large corporation that has a large fleet across the board um, just to test how it goes in real time. So um, very exciting um, mm. advancement. Yeah. Um, how big of a problem is drink driving? Because the way it appears to me is that it was a big problem, you know, in decades gone by, but since the the social changes have happened and I suppose laws have become tougher. Uh, people are less likely to do it, but clearly people still are drink driving. Yeah, it's fair to say it's less of a problem, Mitchell, but it still is one of the big um, factors for road trauma. Um, and while it's sort of somewhere around 15 to 20% involvement in fatalities, that's still a very high number. And not only that, there is that hidden road toll we talk about of serious injuries. Um, so you can probably times that by... Um, uh, a fairly large number for the number of people who um, are fortunate enough to survive but live with the, uh, uh, you know, the, the permanent um, impacts that a serious injury in a car crash uh, can provide. So it's definitely something um, that will complement, I guess, the work that we've done in drink driving. I mean, I think I'm very sure Victoria has the toughest penalties in Australia for drink driving, mm. um, uh, just with things like automatic loss of licence, um, interlock for six months, even for first-time offenders. 
um, police administer about 3 million breast tests a year. But this is more coming from the carrot, I guess you'd say, rather than the stick. It's basically saying to people, well, look, here is some technology to help you. This is an issue for you. And, you know, in a utopian sort of view, this would become a standard safety feature. So instead of looking at it like a, you know, blown into the bag or whatever, you know, you have to say when you pull up to one of those RBTs, it's basically saying, well, this is like an airbag. This is like a seatbelt reminder. This is like lane keep assist. It's in your car to help help you rather than a, um, uh, I guess, a more punitive approach to drink driving. And in terms of why drink driving actually happens, do we have a sense of that? Is it because people struggle to control their alcohol intake and then just think, well, I'll be fine? Or is it a lack of alternative transport options and people think, well, I have to get home, so I'll just risk it? Or what's really going on there? Yeah, it's a real behavioural, um, socioeconomic thing, um, Mitchell. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert, but when I chat to our head of road safety, Samantha Cofield, um, we're now at the level where there's a, I guess, a, a hardcore cohort who are recidivists and will constantly drink drive, and it goes into lifestyle issues um, and can go into mental health. So it's a it's a social issue which crosses over um, with... Um, with road safety. Having said that, um, we're all aware of people who have just made a stupid mistake, but there are some embedded issues across society as well with um, alcohol consumption and how that relates to people uh, making those decisions mm. to jump into a car. So are you saying that the recidivism rate's quite high even if people go through those full-on penalties that we have here in Victoria, which from what I understand, you have to have an interlock device fitted to your vehicle for a prescribed amount of time. It's a pretty intense fine and you may also lose your licence in the process. And I think you also have to attend a, a couple of days of seminars, don't you? Yeah, you do. Yeah, that's correct. So, um, look, I was probably being a little loose-lipped before Mitchell. We, we know anecdotally that it is very hard to be a recidivist with those barriers in front of you, but um, unfortunately we do see instances of people driving unlicensed or um, uh, which could be, uh, you know, while drink driving. So sometimes even the most punitive measures can't stop a certain, um, uh, you know, a certain demographic. Mm. But that is very much, we're talking very much on the fringes um, with that sort of behaviour. Is this technology expensive to install? In other words, would it add a lot to the price of a new car? I'm reliably informed it's not. I don't have an exact um, cost for you. Um, the trial is a little over a million dollars, but that comes with retrofitting a, and dedicating a car. It's currently in a uh, Toyota RAV4. Um, but it is, I'm, I'm told it's actually really, well, not simple technology, but fairly easy um, to install. We, we think ultimately it would be very possible for a really small, cost-effective um, passive alcohol sensor to be installed as part of a standard vehicle build so it wouldn't be I'm just trying to think of something really elaborate that you'd have to add to a car we think it could be definitely um, commercialised and basically there's four of these sensors uh, throughout the cabin Uh, steering wheel and the glove box the driver's side door and the passenger side door that wouldn't normally be in a um, in a trial vehicle but uh, it's for demonstration and testing purposes and if I could just speak further about how it works before I think I was probably a little bit vague um it measures the amount of alcohol and carbon dioxide in a driver's breath. If the amount of carbon dioxide is within a set range, the system knows the alcohol measurement is that of the driver. So that's how, I guess, the, the sensors are set up. Oh, um, I see. So if it was yeah. someone further away from the sensor, like in the back seat, uh, it wouldn't be yeah. picking up as much carbon dioxide. Correct. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, it's, um, and, and it can take these readings in less, less than a second. Yeah. Um, 
and yeah. I'm told more precise and reliable than all other alcohol detection technology. Um, yeah, well, that's what I was curious about because I think these alcohol interlock devices, from what I've heard, they're actually quite expensive to have fitted, and I think you've actually then got to go and have them recalibrated or something on a, a regular basis. There's quite a cost involved. So these sensors must use some sort of different approach to measuring levels of alcohol that quite... I suppose, don't require that level of human intervention. Yes, yes, yep, that's correct. Um, and we're only sort of really just scratching the surface on um, on how that could be applied here. Clearly, we have a pretty long history of um, uh, of using um, and evolving various types of alcohol detection mm. uh, devices. Um, but this one, um, yeah, the, the reason why we've sort of, I guess, so keenly interested on it is the fact that as I said before, it takes accurate readings in less than a second. It's very unobtrusive. Like, they're sort of, if you can imagine, you know, when you're, well, particularly older cars now, I guess when you had the doorknob, yes. it sort of goes up and, you know, you pull it up and pull it down to lock. It's about the size of that. Uh. And it doesn't protrude. It's just a, an opening in the in the door. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it's, yeah, we really we really believe that it's, it's certainly worth our, um, our time and uh, investment in, in seeing the the life-saving potential um, of a fleet trial. So where to from here with this technology? You say you've got the one car um, which is sort of demoing this. You're looking for a fleet trial partner, but I guess the question from a lot of people out there might be how quickly could we start to see this technology in, first of all, I'm assuming new cars that we buy and then perhaps even looking at retrofitting. Well, depending on how the trial goes, but the all the indication is that um, and particularly from uh, the US partner in this, um, the DADS, the ADLS um, outfit in the US, is that it could easily be, they're so confident in the technology, um, if there's a willingness across the uh, the car industry, um, they could roll them out mm. now. Wow. Yeah. But, you know, you know how um, regulation industries go, it can take some time. Um, you know, we've only really sort of broken the back of making imports and AEB and all that sort of safety features mandatory on uh, on cars either entering our market. So it has eventually become part of that process. But um, as I said, a lot of water to go under the bridge, but just a, a really um, exciting, uh, there's never really been any uh, vehicle safety features that address alcohol. So it's a bit of a first, uh, definitely a first for Australia. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for being with us this morning. Really appreciate it. I think you've got a few people thinking about what this might look like. But uh, let's see how the trial goes and go from there. Yeah, great. Thanks so much, Mitchell. Thank you very much. Uh, Nick uh, McGay with us there, who is the manager of media and communications at the TAC, talking about this idea of passive alcohol sensors in cars. Could that work? The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 to 11. Or search for Mitchell's Front Page on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you get your podcasts.